This is the Silver City Church Podcast. Our prayer is you are edified by this content and that it refines your life in Christ. Visit us at silvercityky.com. From there, you can connect with us on social media, view our location and service time, and download our mobile app to stay all the more connected with us. If this content has been beneficial to you, please share it and give this show a high rating so more may hear the gospel of Christ. May you see God's will be done and kingdom come in your life. Well, it's great to be with you this morning as we go to the word of the Lord. I I do see we have many guests, and so I just want to take this time to say thank you for being here. We have a gift for you after service. We want to see you and, and have some fellowship with you, but we do things slightly different here we are a family that's focused on family worship, so we don't silo the kids off to some place. And so you may hear some fussiness. Parents, if that's one of your kids, take that time as an opportunity to discipline in the Lord, to show them that this is serious. And we can't wait for our kids to be able to grow up one day and say, I never knew a time I did not walk with the Lord because I was in, excuse me, I was in the Lord's house. Amen. Well, this morning, I'm going to start with some history. I like to start with history sometimes. As we begin sermons, get you thinking. I want to talk about ancient history in the time of cave paintings and trying to start fire with rocks, the 1960s. Sorry, Rick and Pebble. (laughs) Back in the 1960s, ancient history, to, to many of us, there was an invention that seemingly changed the entire world for at least about a generation. It was a a small piece of plastic, a square, and in the middle of it, it had these two holes that were notched, and it had like this tape that ran underneath of an opening in that plastic piece that you put into this weird box and made noise. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? No, cassette tape, cassette tape. No longer did you have to lug around a box full of those big LP45s that I've seen in many a garage sale just sitting there with lots of water damage because no one knew what to do with them after cassettes and eight tracks and then CDs and all that stuff. You could have music or audio on this little thing that you carried with you. How many of y'all had a Walkman? All right. Kids, ask your parent or a grandparent or whoever you're with today, what a VHS is, and what a cassette is, and an 8-track, and it'll blow your minds. But RCA, a a tech company, saw this invention and said, like any good corporate American company, we can do that better. We can do that better. So this tech company took the cassette tape and made it to where you could flip it to the other side and have a whole other side to record, like on the reverse side of it. And thus, RCA introduced to the world the A-side and the B-side, all right? Pretty cool, kids. It's wild. Look it up. So This morning, what we are about to explore in the scriptures is the B-side of the opening cassette tape of the Psalms. Psalm 1 was side A, and side B of the tape this week is Psalm 2. So guess what that means? It means that they're one single tape, as we will see in a singular song this morning, singing this meta-narrative song for the entire opening intro of this altar. If you're willing and able, would you please open your Bible to Psalm chapter 2. 
Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of earth set themselves and their rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Thus says the living word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, you have caused all the scriptures to be written for our learning. God, would you grant us the ability to hear them, to read them, to mark them, to learn them, to delight in them, to take them into our inner man, to give us the blessed hope of life in your son, the word made flesh, shed his blood for us that we would be reconciled unto you. God, would you not allow your word to return void to you? We know that you do not. And would it go out into each heart as the implanted word today into good soil? Will we bear fruit, keeping you for your glory and our good? And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week in our examination of Psalm 1, I mentioned that Psalm 1 and 2 were at one time thought to be a singular psalm. Now today we're going to see how that idea is, is likely correct and also see how Psalm 2 is it's not, not necessarily a separate psalm from Psalm 1, but more of an expansion of it. But before we do that, I want to examine Psalm 2 in its own right, and then we'll see how it goes together with Psalm 1. Psalm 2 is what is known as a messianic psalm or a psalm that has to do with the divine Savior specifically. The psalm is frequently quoted in the New Testament, and in Acts chapter 4, there is authorship attributed to David. In Acts 4, if you remember, after being released from the temple prison for healing a man, Peter and John preached the gospel to the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high court that just hated the gospel, that hated Jesus, the very ones that, that had him killed in a way, and tells the Sanhedrin, listen, you're telling us to stop preaching this. Whether we need to listen to you or to God, eh, you can figure that out for yourself, but we're going to listen to God, basically is what they tell them. And so they, they get out of this temple prison, the temple prison there, and they run and find some of their friends, the other apostles and the disciples, and we see them effectively singing a song of praise unto God in Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 23. Hear this. When they were released, that's John and Peter, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voice together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, by the Holy Spirit, so we have the Psalms as inspired by God, 
Why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in the city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Oh my goodness, that's a lot to take in about Psalm 2. The early church recognized that Jesus was the true anointed Messiah King and that the kingdom that he talked about was the kingdom of Psalm 2. The theme of the kingdom of God and the ruler of the kingdom, it is heavily present, heavily present in Psalm chapter 2. And the apostles recognized that. I don't want to look past the fact that they recognized this and see what they saw. So let, let, let's see what they knew real quick. Ready? First thing's this. The, the idea of a physical throne merging with a cosmic or heavenly throne is the focus here in Psalm 2 and also in Acts. So from the earliest days of the Davidic covenant, David was fully aware, he was fully cognizant that the promise of a son sitting on his throne forever did not mean some physical unending throne in Jerusalem on Zion's hill, but meant this cosmic throne that can never be thwarted. The first thing. The second is this. A physical throne in a single locale represented the internal rule and the ruler of a cosmos. David had this understanding that God is a true king who reigns forever, and hence God also, David also recognized rather that the son from his loins would reign forever. It couldn't be just some ordinary son. The entire psalm also is a contrast between the, the wicked kings of the world versus the true righteous king, the sovereign king, ending with this firm admonition, like a wake-up call, a warning. Lastly, the, the psalm utilizes various word threads or single words that kind of thread together with the psalm before it and kind of after, and they're meant to be tugged upon as we would do today. Now, one idea I do want to give you that's not from the apostles, from another scholar, one I've mentioned before, o. Palmer Robertson, about the structure of the psalm. Remember that, that psalm, the, the first book of the psalms has this theme of confrontation confronted with the true Ruler versus wicked rulers and a choice on who to follow. You've got to remember all that. It's a lot to take in, but if we frame it up like that, we're good to stay in the bounds. So Psalm 2 begins with the dialogue of, a, of an unknown narrator asking and observing some rhetorical questions and statements. So verses 1 through 3. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. This is nothing short of worldwide rebellion against God and his anointed king. The, the word anointed, Mashiach, here is, is where we get the word Messiah. It's where we get the word Messiah. It just quite literally means one who is poured out, one who is poured out upon, like oil being poured out upon, like we see with Saul and with, with David. The initial question is asking, why does the world commit treason against God? Why is this worldwide treason going on? Why do they do this? This worldwide rebellion is shown to come through corrupt leadership, 
And we know leadership corrupts from the top down, don't we? These wicked kings of the world, they are simply representatives of all who would rebel against the Lord and his anointed, just as we have representatives in our state and in our congressional system that supposedly represent us little people, but so often they do not, do they? Notice at once the language these representative rebels use. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords away from us. These wicked sinners are using decreation language. Let us burst their bonds apart. Genesis 1.26. Many of us know this, don't we? Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth, right? Let us create man in our own image. These wicked sinners have taken the bait of Eden. Let us be as gods. We shall do what we want. We shall have no authority over us. Decreation language. But notice all this wicked plotting to rebel against the Lord is in vain. It's futile. It's a raging that brings about nothing but judgment and wrath, not fulfillment and power and freedom and humanism, all these things. It's like modern men of Sodom in a way. It's like the men of Sodom of the Bible, who even after being struck with blindness, was it say in Genesis 19, they, they wore themselves out groping for the door of Lot's house. It's mindless futility. This assembling of worldwide wickedness needs to at once cause us to recall another part of Genesis, the Tower of Babel, when God confused, uh, before he confused the languages of men, in their wickedness, men come together to build for themselves a kingdom and a name and to have their own God and have their own rule and have their own likeness spread over the face of the earth. There is one thing that humanity is united in. It's not being disunited in hating one another through politics or anything like that. The one thing that humanity is really good at uniting in is sinning and rebelling against the Lord. Rebellion against God, church, it's not complex. We try to have all these loopholes and all this crazy system. It's not complex. It's not a labyrinth or a maze that you stumbled into and you're like, I don't know how to get out. It's actually a single sentence here. Let us burst their bonds and cast their cords away from us. To rebel and sin against God is to believe God is chaining you down. Uh, the decade after ancient history in the 60s, the 70s, you all lived through it. The man, right? The man's trying to chain you down, right? That's how God's viewed so often. He's not allowing you to be free. Yet what the rebel so often does not understand is we're all slaves to something, either to God or to our sin. And Sin makes a terrible master. The single sentence of sin is simply the fall of man in the garden recapitulated to a worldwide level just as the dominion of the garden was to go worldwide. It is a worldwide rebellion. We see that even with Adam, the first king, because we fell in him in the garden. So is there success in all this wickedness? Is there success as if Man is so powerful, he can cast God and his Messiah down to the ground and trample on them. Can man truly be free and truly be his own man, be a self-made man from the bottom up? Psalm 2, 4. 
He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. It is only in Psalm 2, Psalm 37, and Psalm 59, and all the scriptures that display the Lord laughing. Only three places. They're all in the Psalms. 2, 37, and 59. Don't play pick three tonight with those. Sinful. But see how, with that little joking interjection, we all kind of chuckle. <laughs> the, the laughter of the Lord and all the scriptures and not carefree, it's not like this, <laughs> that's so funny type deal. It is actually mocking, laughing, derision. It shows his power. All this concerted rebellion is measly. It's weak. Sinful man thinking he can actually be free from God's rule. You know what God says? That's cute. That's really cute. That's precious. It's, it's, it's almost like what it must be to be robbed and look down upon everyone with his giant stature. That's cute. Huh, okay, whatever. That's cute. God laughs, mocks, not in approval of sin, not in approval, but in judgment. The last half of verse 4 Hold in derision. The, the Lord, the one who sits in heaven, laughs and he holds them in derision. It, it more literally means in the Hebrew here, the Lord stammers at them. He stutters at them. So they, they come together, let's rebel against the Lord. And he kind of makes fun of them like this. Oh, 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 oh. What it is. That, good try. Good try. It's a jeer. It's just like wisdom personified in, in, in Proverbs 1. She says, if you don't listen to me, this is what's going to happen. I will laugh at your calamity and I will mock the judgment that com comes upon you if you do not listen to me. See, after laughing and mocking the blind rebelliousness of sinful man, the Lord speaks in wrath and in fury. His nostrils flare. His face is red with anger. The conjoined humanity here is personified as altogether rebelling against God and speaking together against him. And so the Lord responds. He speaks. And when God speaks in his word, he does not return to him void. You need to listen. When the Lord speaks chaos, is, is, is subdued like the formless and void deep in Genesis 1, and creation comes into order. So what does he say here? What does he say after he goes, oh, that's, that's cute. As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. How is that terrifying? Okay, I know of two people in this room that have actually been to Jerusalem. Who's been to Jerusalem other than, than, than the McGuire's and you? Anybody else been to Jerusalem? All right, how's that terrifying for us? If we see ourselves as wicked sinners and we need to, we need to see ourselves as falling short. How is that terrifying? Okay, so he's got some king over in the Middle East somewhere. They eat a lot of hummus and olive oil, big deal, right? It's terrifying because God goes on to say what that means for his enemies. The psalmist, the, the narrator says God speaks this decree as a command to him. And, and hear this, I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. 
It's, it's from Hebrews 1, 5 that we read this morning that we gain clarity that the words concerning you are my son, today I've begotten you, are of God to the eternal son, Jesus Christ, the true anointed king. It, in essence, it's as if David is a witness to this decree, knowing that he, David, is a mere type of the true one to come who indeed rules eternally now and forevermore, the blessed Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. In 1 Chronicles 28, 6-7, David, in passing uh, on the battalion to his son Solomon, hears this. He has this, this here. Listen to this in 1 Chronicles 28, 6-7. God says this to David. He said to me, It is Solomon your son who shall build my house and my courts, for I have chosen him to be my son, and I will be his father. I will establish his kingdom forever if he continues strong and keeping my commandments and my rules as he is today. So this event of 1 Chronicles, it, it very well could be the backdrop. It very well could be the backdrop, the event that caused Psalm 2 to be inspired, but we're not for sure about that. But it is interesting to hear that common echo in 1 Chronicles and here in Psalm 2, yet we know Solomon did not continue to keep the commandments of God. So then how could David say, oh yeah, God said that that my son will sit on the throne forever. Well, how does the New Testament even look to Psalm 2 as being about the divine son and not just regular old king's sons? Jesus himself in Matthew 12, 42. The queen of Sheba will rise up at the judgment and this generation with just this generation and condemn it for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And I tell you something greater than Solomon is here. Jesus knew who he was. Jesus knew what the Son of God language that he implemented all the time was truly about. And the apostles eventually did when the Holy Spirit brought to remembrance everything that they had been taught. Acts 4 is not the only place where Psalm 2 is used in the New Testament either. Paul and Barnabas in Antioch preach the good news and then they say in Acts 13, 32 and 33, and we bring you the good news of that God promised to the fathers. This he has fulfilled to us as their children, uh, to us their children by raising Jesus, also as it is written in the second Psalm, You are my son today, I've begotten you. The Hebrews chapter one uses it twice. We read that in our call to worship this morning. Long ago, and many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, spoken through this through his son. And what did it say? Today you are my son, I've begotten you. The preacher of, of Hebrews also uses it again in, in Hebrews 5 5. Saying this, so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Also Hebrews even kind of keys us into the anointed king is more than just the king. He is a priest who offers sacrifice. This declaration of you are my son brings further clarity to all the references of the New Testament concerning Jesus as the son of God. That was a declaration, not of being born of God, as if God had, you know, relations, had a nice one-night stand with some mortal down on earth, like all the Greek myths talk about, and that's how we come up with weirdos like Hercules that can lift a building and stuff like that. No, not demigod status. The declaration of Jesus as the Son of God was a declaration of Jesus being the eternal king, the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. And if the fulfillment of that covenant, then the covenant of all the other four that come before it, in the Mosaic and the Abrahamic and the Noahic and the Edemic were the covenant of life. And indeed he was, as we shall see. 
At his baptism, the Father speaks from heaven concerning Jesus. And what does he say? This is a good prophet. Listen to him. This is my son who sits in heaven in Psalm 2. God. So the Father is God and speaks concerning his son who is given the equal authority and power of God in Psalm 2, of which Hebrews says the same thing right out of the gate. Psalm 2 gives us the deity of Jesus. Psalm 2 shows us who the king is because the father gives the kingdom to the son who gives it back as we see in Daniel. Oh, we could go on forever on that. That's good. But what about that phrase begotten? Doesn't that mean birthed? Yes, it does. Does that mean that Jesus is a created creature like the Arians would want to tell you? He's created the, like this, this first angel or something. Remember what Garrett told us a couple weeks ago about the Gloria Patri. It's a battle song. The Arians would stand on one side of the river and they would start singing their songs about Jesus being a created substance or a created being. And what was the Gloria Patri? It was, we will rock you. Glory be to the Father. Yes! Love it. Arians want you to think Jesus is created. Your Mormon, your Mormon neighbor, your Jehovah's Witness neighbor. Does that mean that he was? It says begotten? No, of course not. Because scripture shines light on what this means. Begotten, brought forth, established. The Son of God is shown to be equal with God in Psalm 2. Total power given both to God and the Son. And God shares his glory with no other. Isaiah 42, 8 can't be a creature. The New Testament constantly says that Jesus is the firstborn, the begotten of the dead. Talking about the resurrection. It's not talking about his physical birth. It's talking about the first fruits of the dead. Revelation 1.5, and from Jesus, the faithful witness, so he's addressing the churches, right? The firstborn of the dead and the ruler of, oh my goodness, kings of earth. Whoa. Now it's all starting to come together. The begetting of God, the Father, upon the Son is the begetting, the bringing forth of the resurrection, which displayed Jesus to be the eternal Son of God who shall reign forever. And indeed, there was a day that was called today when Jesus rose from the grave. And that's what we celebrate every Resurrection Sunday. And indeed, we know this. That's a terribly powerful God, indeed all-powerful. Amen? Why is it that the enemies will not tremble? They don't tremble. It's because they are blind in their own rebellion to see that their rebellion is somehow of God's sovereign plans, a part of it. They just don't see it. They don't think the Son, they don't think God will rule over them. The terror poured out on the enemies of God doesn't come from there being a declaration of a Son ruling in God's place as God, but in what God says He will do in loving submission to His anointed Messiah. Ask me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. The same nations that rage against God, from America to Zambia, cannot escape the rule of God. Indeed, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The anointed king, the son of God, is prompted to ask for an inheritance. And God says, I will give it to you. And guess what it is? It's not silver or gold that moth and rust and flame can eat up, but the very ends of the earth. God will rule over the earth. Indeed, he does. The rebellion of sinners amounts to nothing. The reign of the king will be and is strong. He will rule over the nations with an iron rod and break them up like a piece of pottery that you got from Hobby Lobby. Dashed to pieces. 
Iron and bronze in the scriptures are most often, more often than not, related to war. See, the reign of the king is one where he goes to war with rebellious sinners, and they are too stupid to realize that they are potter's clay in his hands. Yet, notice in the psalm, Psalm 2, the war, the battle of the divine son against the rebellious world is not based on a conquest by force. It's not jihad, right? Based in speech. The father tells the son, ask me and I shall give you. If the son is of the father and the father gives the son, the nations is a heritage based upon a word and the son shall rule and he shall break them in the same way. And so it is. Revelation 19, then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and the one sitting on it was called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. This is Jesus and the word of his mouth, an iron scepter comes forth rules and breaks the nation's will. The final words of Psalm 2 are a call to realization, verses 10 through 12. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. All nations, hear how futile it is to rage against the Lord, for he will rule you whether you like it or not. Point blank, either submit to his kingship, for he is Lord now, not when you decide that he is, and you serve him with joy and reverence, or you will serve him as he conquers you, and he gives the land to his people, the world, and breaks you into pieces. That's the choice. To kiss the son is to simply pay homage and respect him as you bow before him. It's not like something weird as we try to make everything in our culture. Think of it like this. He's, he's extending his hand for you to kiss with a signet ring on it. But yet, church, he is so glorious that we cannot even behold the splendor of his majesty. And it would be better for us to fall at his feet and kiss them the way that Mary did in Luke 7. All right, so let's sum up Psalm 2 on its own before we go to Psalm 1 and see how it's together and then apply this to our lives. All of mankind naturally desires to rebel against God, believing they can be free from him and even destroy him, trample upon him. God mocks this and laughs because God, through his king, his son, rules them whether they like it or not. Therefore, there's a choice. We either serve the king and be safe in his kingdom, or we serve the king as he conquers us and destroys us in wrath against sin. Psalm 2 summed up. Why didn't you just start with that to begin with, Pastor? Because you need to know the Word of God. Now, so often we come to our Bibles and we forget that the divisions and the chapters were not inspired. And so we see Psalm 1, then we see Psalm 2, and we automatically in our very Western compartmentalization of everything go, oh, that ends and it goes right there. So we, we, we so often treat the chapters of the Bible like individual songs on a, a CD or a cassette tape right? Or on shuffle, whatever you use, they're random. But they're not random. It's a concept album, remember? It all goes together. So I want to do something a little bit different, right? It's a little bit different. Oh gosh, what are we going to do? Here's what we're going to do. We're going to do a little, little thought experiment. I want to take you back to the time of the synagogue or the temple even, when access to the written word was very limited. We had scrolls and the primary hearing of the word of God was not reading, but through 
hearing a priest or, or someone like that. So here's the, here's the experiment. Hey, listen, I know it's raining. Saw some of you all eating the wonderful starches out front. Don't get sleepy. This isn't a time to nod off, okay? But I do want you to close your eyes for just a minute. I want you to take this, this thought out of your mind. When you, you who know where Psalm 1 ends, blessed is you know, the man, that kind of stuff. Just take that out of your mind like you've never heard it before. And I want you to hear this, okay? Everybody just um, chew on the word, meditate, and listen to this. You ready? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinner in the co- sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Do you hear how that's one entire singular psalm? It begins and ends with ashray, blessed. It's an inclusio, right? A thought sandwich with everything in between that word being about what it is. Blessed, the blessed life. And what's the blessed life? What is it? To be a blessed, godly person in God's kingdom under God's rule? That's what it's all about, right? That's the blessed life. What? Now it's all starting to make sense why Jesus came preaching the kingdom. To be one who loves God's rule through his decree, through his word, that's there. To live by his instruction, yes. And to see the cosmic king ruling and reigning over all of creation, even rebellious sinners, seeing that this kingdom shall have no end and it will go forth with power. Seeing in him that we have refuge, to be in his word, to delight in it, to flee from sin. Have refuge in the king and his kingdom. And the only way that you can be in that kingdom is if you repent of your sins. Flee from the path of the wicked. Flee to the tower. Flee to the stronghold and kiss the nail-pierced hands of the sun. This introductory psalm taking one and two together, how can we not marvel at it? That this is what we are called to join in singing. This glorious God who would bless us, redeem us, and give us his law to delight in and to know we can't get away from him. Thank God that he chases down rebellious sinners. Thank God that he will break us. He created us. Amen.
There's some big details that we need to take together about Psalm 1 and 2. I mentioned the five Old Testament covenants being bound up in Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 and this kind of being a part of the entire Psalter. We see in Psalm 1 and 2, the covenant of life with Adam to delight in obeying in the word of the Lord, the tree of life. Covenant of justice with Noah, God's wrath will be poured out against sin. The covenant of possession with Abraham, the entire world is given to who? God. The covenant of the law with Moses, living in the kingdom by the king's rules. The covenant of dominion with David, the son king is given authority to rule over all the earth as judge. All there. And if they are all there, then so too are those five themes that uh, Robertson has given us. Confrontation, we are confronted with the purpose of the book, the blessed life, and the blessed kingdom, and that there are two paths confronted to choose. There's communication. The whole world is given the plan, not just a little select Illuminati group. There's devastation. The wrong path is devastating, ending in wrath and destruction. There is maturation to flee from sin, to delight in the word of God. Taking refuge in the Lord is progressive. It's over time. Maturing faith and then consummation. The king rules his kingdom and his kingdom, cosmos. Choose his path. Pay homage to him, lest we be his enemy who is conquered and end up paying homage to him anyway in tears and regret as we're cast away. There's little details too. Blessed being the opening and closing thought. The way of the wicked of Psalm 1 perishing and the way of the wicked in Psalm 2 being burnt up. Remember that the wicked in Psalm 1 are likened to chaff or hay that's dried and burnt up in the fire. See how it goes together? See this? Psalm 1 being about the individual and then Psalm 2 being about the community and communities are made up of individuals. Psalm 2 is an expansion of exposition of Psalm 1, showing how the way of the wicked will perish and how sinners will not stand in judgment, how the blessed man delights in the law of God because it is how he is in the kingdom. These two pillars of Psalm 1 and 2 prop up our temple of praise that we are called to join in with. And it's not just for the Psalms. These two pillars are the entirety of the Christian life. Love the Lord with all that you are. Honor him. Delight in his ways. Love your neighbor. Flee from sin. Call them unto the kingdom. Warn of the wrath to come. Now, how do we apply all this to our life? How do we apply this? Firstly, dear listener, you need to recognize this. Just as the true blessed man of Psalm 1 is Jesus, and we're called to follow him, he, Jesus, is the blessed king who is Lord over all. Jesus rules and reigns now. Not sometime in the future, not sometime in the past, not when you decide that you want him to be Lord. He is Lord. He's the true king. He's the true king that that whole office points to, the fulfillment, the true idea of a just and loving ruler who is powerful. He is who we look to for the rule of our lives. We listen to him, not ourselves, not any other man. We enter this kingdom, his kingdom, to be safe or be conquered by his kingdom and his wrath. Will you be the blessed man who kisses the nail-scarred hands of the king or will you kiss his rod of iron as he smashes your teeth out? Nova is 
currently. Hi. She's trying to lose a tooth. Kind of hurts, doesn't it? Imagine the Lord breaking your tooth, smacking you in the mouth with a rod of iron because you want to be one. Serve him in love and fear. How can you be in this kingdom? Only by repentance and only delighting in his word. Jesus says to Nicodemus in John 3, 3 through 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born again? If he enters his mother's womb a second time? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot be born again. To be in his kingdom, to live the true blessed life, you must repent of your sins and follow Christ. And if you have, dear beloved, if this is you and you know with confidence, that bold confidence that we read about and learned in 1 John, then you need to remember this. 1 Corinthians 4.20, For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, power. The kingdom of God, the salvation of the anointed king, is not measly. It changes you. It's not just a card you check off. It's not just something that you do by coming to church and you eat a donut and drink coffee and high and wave and do all those things. No, if you are not bearing fruit, keeping in repentance, dear listener, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Like Philippians 2 tells us, examine yourself, repent unto the kind king and ask him to make you more like his kingly son. Do this every day. Zeal. Do not be slothful in zeal. You know what? Can I, can I encourage you, those of you who are in the kingdom, that when you examine yourself and you desire to follow in his ways, do you know what? It's not an if or a might. It's a guarantee. I want you to take this promise to the bank because it's the king's gold and it's worth every penny. Luke, 20, or Luke 12, 32. Fear not, little flock. Why? Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. How can you not be overwhelmed that the God of all the universe would call you into his love when you want the cords away from him and say, I love you. I've redeemed you. This is my king. Follow him. And his kingdom, it's yours. You're a part of it. Fear not, little flock. It's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Only his way, how he says. You cannot get into the kingdom on your own. You must repent of your sins. Follow him. His kingdom come. His will be done. In your life, right here, on earth, as it is in heaven. Church, may Christ reign in your heart as he reigns over your life, and as he reigns over the cosmos. Today, I urge you to kiss ye the sun, day and every day. Grace and peace to you. Thank you.